Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we once again thank you for the privilege it is to gather as your people and the privilege of it is, it is to hear your word through, your, through the Bible. And we just pray that uh, through the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, you really help us to understand what is being said and to apply it to our lives and to never cease listening to you in everything that we do. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, it's interesting, last week I uh, went to many of the talks with uh, the Project Timothy, with uh, Don Carson, and one of the things that uh, we often find is as we meet people, uh, after the first uh, sentence is in, you know, hi, I'm Andrew, and you're what? Uh, people then ask you, what do you do, and things like that. And I think uh, it sort of revolved around my mind then about how important it is, uh, the issue of identity is. Because usually, we identify ourselves in various ways. Uh, the most common ways is to identify ourselves by what we do. I'm a teacher, I'm an accountant, I'm a doctor, I'm a full-time mum. But I think that as uh, we were listening to the talk yesterday, uh, especially in the world that we live in, people identify themselves in a myriad of different ways, not just the obvious ways of work. Uh, increasingly in the world we live in, uh, people identify themselves as their sexuality. You know, we're very connected and sexuality is so widely available through the internet everything. People identify themselves through their sexuality. Am I a, a straight person? Am I a bi person? Am I a homosexual? Am I a hot person? Am I a hunk? Or am I sexually attractive? Uh, people identify themselves with the possessions they have. Uh, what watch they wear, what clothes they wear. You know those ones, the big symbols at the front what cars they drive, and what sort of houses they live in. Or maybe people identify themselves as the subculture they come from. You know, I'm a really active person, I'm really into jogging, uh, triathlon. You know, you see those people, they're always wearing those, I finished, you know, the marathon things. Or maybe they're really into dancing, right? Or soccer or something like that. And so people identify themselves with all these things. But I think that as we come to God's Word, as we come to the Bible... Uh, God really is interested in one identity, whether we are in Christ or not in Christ, whether we are saved or whether we face judgment and damnation. The question we ask ourselves is, how do we gain the identity of being in Christ? What do we have to do? How do we work towards being a Christian? Well, actually, as we look at God's Word, it's a supernatural work of God that allows us to have our identity in Christ. As we've looked at today's passage in Colossians chapter 3, right from the very beginning, it shows us the supernatural action of God to bring us into Jesus Christ, to be united in Jesus Christ. In verse 1 it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Now, in that very short four sentences, it shows us that actually when we accept Jesus Christ, we are supernaturally born again and we are united in Christ in His death in His resurrection, and in everything that Jesus has done, we are completely united in Jesus Christ in every way, so that even in His death and resurrection, we are part of Him. Now, that cannot be something that we do. It's something that God does for us supernaturally. 
Now, I think that's so different from the identities that we get in this world. Because in this world, when you want to find your identity, you have to work towards it. Even as an accountant, to become an accountant, you have to, to study for many, many years to school, pass your O-levels, A-levels, go to university. After your university, you've got to get your professional qualifications. Then, you can say, I'm an accountant, that's my identity. I remember when I was studying in boarding school in Australia, I had a friend of mine who was a very ordinary person. He used to sit next to me in class. I was a good friend of his. But I think that he grew bored of being not unique in his identity. Because, you know, he was just one of many, many different sorts of people at school. And I realized in Australia, people can have different sorts of identity and, and, and it's very easy for them to have these identities. So one day, my friend, after he graduated from, uh, from, from school with me, he was in the same university, he decided to become a punk rocker. So over a period of a few weeks, a few months, he started acquiring tattoos, uh, um, what do you call those, earrings, uh, piercings. He started having his hair like really long and unruly. He started wearing dark makeup. He was wearing dark clothes all the time. Now, uh, I, I don't think we've gone so far, but I realize when you go to the MIT, you see a lot of people... And they also have different identities. You know, they have tattoos. I see people with tattoos in their arms, their legs, all sorts of things. And I see the way they dress. And I sort of see to myself, this identity that they've acquired obviously takes a lot of work. Because, you know, the clothes they wear, the, the, the tattoos they put on, it's something that you really have to work towards to, to get that sort of look, isn't it? I mean, doesn't this come naturally when you wake up in the morning that you look this way? But in Jesus Christ... We don't work that way. See, it's not a work that we put in to get the identity. It is a supernatural work of God. The moment I accept Jesus Christ, Jesus becomes part of me. I become part of Jesus. And God has united me in everything that Jesus has done. So what is our identity? Well, the identity, as we see, is that we are saints in Jesus Christ. We are united in Jesus. And when God looks at us, we are His people. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, just up here. Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth. And Paul was an apostle of Jesus, and he says, and he writes to the church in Corinth, and, and look at how he refers to the people in the church of God in Corinth. He calls them the saints throughout Achaia. Now, Achaia is the region of modern-day Greece. Now, Greece is a big country compared to Singapore, probably 50 to 100 times bigger than Singapore. And he says that all these Christians in the area of modern-day Greece, are saints. Now, how can that be? Because today, when we think of a saint, we think of someone who perseverance, consistency, throughout a long period of their life, has led a particularly saintly life. Well, we think of someone like Mother Teresa. Right? That's what it takes to be a saint. You pour yourself into helping people, denying yourself, struggling year after year after year, and then when you finally die, people say, you're a saint. Now surely all these people who lived as Christians in the, uh, in the ancient world there in Achaia could not have been like Mother Teresa. They would have been ordinary Christians, just like you and just like me. So how does God, through the Apostle Paul, then refer to them as saints? They are saints because, like we saw before, God has worked in them through Jesus Christ. And that's why they are saints in God's eyes. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which is also the introduction, Paul the Apostle refers to the people in the church of God in Corinth as those 
sanctified in Christ Jesus. So to be a saint is someone who is sanctified in Jesus Christ. To be sanctified in Christ Jesus is literally to be set apart for God as something holy, something pure, something consecrated before God. So the word saint here, the next slide, the word saint here literally is someone who is sanctified by Jesus Christ. That's what a saint means. It is not something we work towards, it's something that God supernaturally brings us into when we accept Jesus Christ, right, which is the, the next slide. Okay, so God supernaturally brings us to be part of Jesus, to be a saint, to be a people of God because of Jesus Christ. That is our identity. Okay, the identity that we have as Christians. The moment you become a Christian, you accept Jesus, you supremely uh, have your identity found in Jesus Christ and you leave aside all your other identities. Uh, I mean, you can have lots of tattoos, you can have lots of earrings, you can, you, know, you can be whatever, you can be a rocket scientist, you can be anything. But supremely your identity is now found in Jesus Christ. And that's who you are. And that's, what, that's the only identity that counts really because just like the song we sang earlier, all these things can be burned away and at the end of the day, there will be no punk rockers, there will be no houses, there will be no Rolex watches. There will only be those in Jesus or those who are not in Jesus. So, we must be very clear in our minds what our identity is. We are Christians, saints in Jesus Christ. Now, what then is our purpose in life? If our identity is in Jesus Christ, if we are Christians, if we are united in Christ, we have a purpose in life. Uh, if I'm an accountant... My purpose in life is to do accounting, right? If I'm a punk rocker, my purpose in life is to listen to punk music. I don't know. But as a Christian, what am I called to do? Well, it says there that I'm called, you are called as Christians to be holy. Now, people often think that calling only relates to people who are missionaries or pastors. Right? So, you know, the missionary has been called to, to, to a life of mission, to the people in Papua New Guinea or the deepest, darkest Africa. The, the pastor has been called to lead a congregation. But here it says that everyone, every person in Jesus Christ, everyone sanctified in Jesus Christ, is called to be holy. That means that every Christian person is a saint and is called to be holy like a saint. Every Christian person is a God's people and must live by God's values. And God is holy, and therefore we must be holy too. It is a calling we have, and a calling is powerful and it is irresistible. Right? When God calls you to do something, you cannot say to God, I don't want to do it. Right? Right? It's, it's, I don't feel like doing it. It's not my thing, right? When God calls you to do something, you must do it, and we are all called to be holy. Now, I was reading a, a few weeks ago an article about how in America uh, there's this uh, big court case that's happening about a general who is being court-martialed. And uh, the charge against this general is that he was behaving in a conduct unbecoming of an officer. Right, so, he's an officer, but he was not behaving like an officer. He had conduct 
unbecoming of an officer. Now, I think for many Christians today, the problem is that they are living in a way with a conduct which is unbecoming of a saint. We are all called to be holy, but many, many Christians who are saints in Jesus Christ live in a way which is unbecoming of a saint. Now, why does this happen? Why, why is it so many Christians live in a way which is not holy, which is in a conduct unbecoming of a saint? Well, I think that the problem is people, modern-day Christians, have lost the right biblical conception of sin. If I were to ask you today, what is sin? What, what comes to your mind? What is sin? What is a sin? Okay, so think to yourself, what is sin? Now, if I were to hazard a guess, I can't read your mind, right? I'm not a street magician or something like that. I would say that for some of you, you probably think of a sin like murder, uh, adultery, uh, homosexuality, abortion maybe. Now, I was reading this book which was quite interesting and uh, it said that there was this woman who uh, wrote a book and she reviewed all these sermons which were being preached in America. Uh, 47 sermons actually, preached by Baptists and Presbyterian pastors on the prodigal son. Luke chapter 15. And she found a few phenomena with the way that the sermon was being preached. She found two things in particular. One is that there was the phenomena of cushioning. Cushioning. See, usually when you preach sin from the Bible, you should really punch it hard, isn't it? Punch it so that people will understand what sin is in, in, their, in people's lives. But what she found, in, especially in America, I can't say the same in Singapore, but in America was that many times when the issue or the topic of sin came about, uh, the pastor would tend to cushion the effect of the language and the impact of what was being said. So instead of punching it through, he would just cushion the blow. So for instance, instead of using strong words like adultery, they would use words like an affair. Instead of saying stealing, they would say fraud. Instead of showing sin to be what it really was, sin became more like a bad habit, a personality flaw or a rough edge on your individual makeup. Now, you know that uh, the Alpha course is very popular in Singapore and around the world. And one of the reasons why actually we don't have the Alpha course here at church and we don't, I, I don't really subscribe to it is because the, the, the Alpha course really cushions sin. If you have actually sat through the Alpha course material, sin is described in this way. Sin, according to the Alpha course, is the mess that we make in our own lives. Sin is the rubbish that clutters up our lives and clutters up the world. Sin is the misery you bring on your life. Now, I guess it all sounds very uh, nice and you know, quite plausible. But that is not sin, my friends. Sin is rebellion and rejection of God. Sin 
is always relational against God and disobeying what God says and sin ultimately leads to death and judgment and hell. See, when you define sin as just a mess that mucks up your life or the rubbish of your life, that is the consequence of sin. But that is not sin itself. You see, the Bible says that greed is a sin. But greed, for many people, doesn't muck up their lives. In fact, it enriches their life because it makes them wealthy and happy. See, sin has been cushioned because instead of saying what sin really is, people think sin is just something that it mucks up my life and makes my life not as enjoyable as it should be. That's cushioning. The second thing she noticed was that in a lot of churches now, instead of talking about what sin really is, sin is deflected. Okay, sin is deflected. It's deflected, you know, you know mahjong, right? I always remember. I, 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 I never understood what mahjong was. I mean, I understand mahjong the game, right? But I remember when I was working, my friend kept saying, you must mahjong more, mahjong more. I was like, what? Right? Mahjong is, you know, when you deflect things to other people. So, you know, you've got some assignment, you push it to your, uh, your subordinate, right? You've got, you got some problem, you push it off to someone else. Well, that's what uh, this writer was saying was happening with sin in churches. People are deflecting it. And when you talk about sin, instead of saying the problem of sin in the church, sin is what happens outside the church. So when I preach on sin, it is those heathen out there you know, that are murderers and abortionists and homosexuals. They are the outsiders of the church, but not, 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 not us. We, we're not sinful. It's all those terrible people out there. That's deflection. And the problem is that once you start preaching like that, and once you start hearing sermons over and over like that, then people don't get the right understanding of sin. They just think it's the worst sin of the people out there whom we never see because obviously there are no murderers here, no abortionists, and as far as we know, there are no people in rampant sexual sin. And that leads to the third phenomena. So there was cushioning, deflection, and I think the third one was the redefining of sin. Because the problem is when you cushion sin this way and you deflect sin this way, then people think that, well, sin is only about the really bad things that people do. I remember talking to someone and uh, they said, oh, I'm not a sinner. And I said, how can you say you're not a sinner? I keep the Ten Commandments, the man said. I said, oh, uh, okay. Could you tell me what the Ten Commandments are? Uh, Well, okay, thou shalt not murder and thou shalt not commit adultery. And I can't remember the rest. Right. So he only remembers two commandments out of the ten. And he said, well, I don't murder and I don't commit adultery, so I'm not a sinner. See, that's the problem. You see, we redefine sin into just the broadest, worst categories of society. So people think, hallelujah, I'm a saint. I'm holy. I'm living the way I'm supposed to be. And I think that when we redefine sin this way, we basically redefine sin based on what society views as the worst and most unacceptable things. I remember uh, coming together in a de- or discussion or debate with some pastors before. And I think part of the problem is that 
society now determines to us as Christians what sin is and not the Bible. You ever ask yourself the question why it is that an American Christian can find homosexuality okay even though they're a Christian? And why maybe a Singaporean Christian has trouble with it? Ultimately, it's because the church has abdicated the definition of sin to society and not to the Bible. Because for the American Christian, he lives in a society which basically says and legitimizes that homosexuality is okay. So the Christian there thinks, well, I'm not a bad person because homosexuality is okay by American society, so it must be okay for God. And I remember talking to a pastor in Singapore who said, oh, it's a good thing that we are Chinese. Because we are Chinese and traditional, therefore we do not accept homosexuality. But that's not the biblical answer, isn't it? That's not the godly answer. We are called to be holy. We're not called to be traditional. We're called to be Chinese. Our identity is in Christ. So the problem is, because of this cushioning, of this deflecting, of this redefining, people have lost the idea of what sin is and they've lost the pursuit of holiness. Now, I want you to read Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 to 14 again. And ask yourself exactly what is sin. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature or your flesh, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways once in the life that you lived. But now you must rid yourself of all things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has grievances against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. You see, if you look at this uh, list here, how many of you chose sin as gossip or slander or rage or anger or greed. See, ultimately, we must see sin for what it is. Sin is what God tells us is sin. Sin is what is grieving to God. Sin is what is against the holiness of God. If you look at this list, there is no difference in God's eyes between sexual immorality and and greed, and greed and rage, and rage and bitterness and, 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 and lying. 
There is no such thing as the worst sin or the best sin. In fact, there are no best sins, right? They're all sins. I remember this guy uh, wrote uh, this quote, this guy called Rolf Benning, and I found it very memorable. He said, God is holy, all holy, only holy and altogether holy and always holy. So sin is sinful, all sinful, only sinful, altogether sinful and always sinful. See, there is no sin which is more respectable to God than another sin. Yesterday when we... Uh, I, I really... Well, it's too late for me to commend it to you because the talk's over. <laughs> but Don Carson gave a really good talk on uh, sexuality, homosexuality and uh, the new tolerance in the world. And someone asked him a question about uh, how we should treat uh, a relative or a friend who's struggling with homosexuality. And he said, well, we should pray for them, but we should not treat them any different from a greedy man or an angry man or uh, a divisive man or a gossiping man because they're all sins before God. We should not make homosexuality as the sin of, to end all sin. So as we look at our own lives, we have to recognize that sin is altogether sin with God. There's not one sin which is more acceptable, which you can tolerate in your own life, which is more respectable or acceptable to God, but they must all be addressed and repented of as we grow in holiness. See, look what it says there in Ephesians chapter 4, which is up here. Okay? It says that all these sins grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Look, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, Sorry, just as in Christ, God forgave you. See, every one of these sins that we don't really take, I mean, I guess I don't take that seriously, grieves the Holy Spirit of God living in us. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice, unwholesome talk. They grieve the Holy Spirit, they grieve God. I don't have to murder someone. I don't have to have an abortion, I don't have to commit some heinous sexual sin. By my bitterness, my brawling, my anger, it, it grieves God. But more than that, these sins, even though we don't view them very seriously, bitterness, rage, slander, anger, gossip, if we continue in them, it can actually lead to judgment and hell. That's not what the world says. It's acceptable for the world, but it's not acceptable for God. We continue to indulge in it. See, in James chapter 1, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted, when by his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Now, when you read this passage, 
when you read the word sin, when it's full grown leads to death, what sort of sin comes to your mind? Well, I don't know, I mean, usually we think of the worst sin, isn't it? Well, yes, if I murder someone, I keep murdering and murdering and murdering, yes, it will lead to death. If I continue to sleep around with prostitutes over and over and over again, yes, it will lead to death. But sin is not just those things, isn't it, in God's eyes. We continue to indulge our, our anger. We continue to indulge our gossip. If we continue to indulge our bitterness against God, other people, if we continue to indulge in our divisiveness, well, it can lead to death. In Galatians chapter 5, it warns us, right? The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Yes, sexual immorality, amen to that. Impurity and debauchery, amen. Idolatry and witchcraft, yes, that's bad. But, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness and orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Amazing, isn't it? If you continue to indulge in divisiveness and in, in, in selfish ambition and rage, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, it's like if you have a cancer in your body, right? You go to the doctor and uh, you go for your routine checkup and they find a cancer, a melanoma on your skin or breast cancer or prostate cancer for men, what is your immediate reaction? Your immediate reaction is you want to, 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 to get rid of that cancer. You, you want to cut out the melanoma from the skin, you know, remove the lump from your breast, you know, get rid of the tumor in your prostate. Well, that's the way that we should feel towards sin in our life. Uh, not murder. I mean, I mean, obviously, if we are murderers, we should. But I mean, but more than just murder, right? More than just the heinous sins of society. If we have rage in our hearts, if we have bitterness, if we are divisive, if we have selfish ambition, well, these are the things that are cancers in our Christian life. And that's what God says. It's not what society says. So what must we do? Well, three quick steps. Uh, unfortunately, I don't, I don't have all the time to go through all the passages and look through it. But I think there are three quick, quick steps that necessary steps that we have to do. The first thing is recognition of our sin. We really need to recognize sin as what it is. Right? We cannot ignore sins and say, well, let's cushion it. Let's deflect it to the people outside. Let's redefine it so that it's not a sin for me. Because it is a sin for God. Someone recently said to me, when I tried to challenge them about a sin in their life, that it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. Sin is sin. There's no best or worst sins. These are sins. Now, I'm sure that when you are listening to me today, you sort of think, well, the temptation would be to say in your heart, gosh, you know, I really hope so-and-so is really paying attention today and listening to this sermon, right? Because they've got that problem. But actually, we have to look at ourselves and say, do we have this problem? Am I struggling with this thing? So I want you to just look up here on this slide and ask yourself, 
Do you have these traits in your life? Actually, traits is cushioning it, right? Do you have these sins in your life? Are you a malicious person? Do you lie? Do you have rage or anger? Do you sow division or discord? Are you an envious person or do you have unwholesome talk? Bitterness, rage, slander or malice? Because these, in God's eyes, are conduct unbecoming of a saint. These are things which we need all together to recognize has no place in a Christian's life and grieves the Holy Spirit in us. And these are dangerous to our spiritual walk and can eventually lead us to lose our inheritance in Christ. So the first thing is, let's recognize if we have these sins. The first step to dealing with any problem is to recognize the problem. The second step is to confess our sins and to receive forgiveness. In 1 John chapter 1, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His word has no place in His life, in our lives. Now the first step to overcoming sin is to recognize that our sin, all sin, all our sin, 100% of our sin, is forgiven sin. See, part of the problem of not recognizing our sin is because the weight of sin is too heavy on us. We don't want to admit our sins because we don't want to bear the weight on our shoulders. That's why uh, there's there's a passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, next slide which says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See, if we, if, we, if we don't recognize that Jesus has died for all these sins, then we, we don't want to admit that we have these sins because it's too heavy on our shoulders. But I always remember uh, what John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, said when he was a, at his deathbed. He said that, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. See, the only sin you can deal with is the sin that you know that God has forgiven you for. Because if it's forgiven, then you can can move forward safe in the assurance that God has already paid for that sin when He sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. And that motivates me that encourages me to deal with that sin because out of thankfulness I know that Jesus died for that sin. He died for my selfishness. He died for my rudeness. He died for my harshness. He died for my bitterness. In Titus chapter 2, uh, we've preached on this passage before and I could spend a whole 45 minutes preaching on this, but the whole essence of this passage is that the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. See, the grace of God, the forgiveness that comes from God's grace 
teaches us that we should say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. The more and more I reflect on the forgiveness of Jesus, the more and more I'm motivated out of thankfulness and love for what Jesus has done, not to sin anymore. So that's the second step. I can only deal with my sin if I know it is forgiven by God. Then I can confess to God my, my harsh words, my gossip, my divisiveness, my selfish ambition. I know that God has forgiven me for it and I can deal with it. The last and third thing is to repent through the power of the Holy Spirit working in my life. You see, ultimately, God has not just given us power to deal with the guilt of our sin, but He's given us power to deal with the sin in my life itself. And that comes from the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, it says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful natural desires, sorry, for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that they do not do, you do not do what you want. You are, however, the next slide, Romans chapter 8, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation that is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. See, ultimately, we are saints. We are saints in Jesus Christ and we have the Holy Spirit in us. If we choose to let the Holy Spirit work in us, to be led by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit, then we will address these sins in our life. It is said that we are like the motor, we are the engine which does the work against the sins in our life. But where does the power come from? Where does the fuel come from? The Holy Spirit working in us. But we must allow that to happen, isn't it? Unless you recognize that sin, unless you confess that sin, unless you want to deal with that sin, the Holy Spirit will not work together with you to deal with that sin. So my friends, as we reflect on ourselves as individuals and as a church, we are all saints before God. We are all in Christ. Are you really sure of your identity in that way? If you are, then let us truly be called and to live out our lives to be holy. I remember meeting up with a Christian man, a long-time friend, uh, who came and visited me in Singapore. He stayed in Juchet. And I went to visit him, and he's now a, a pastor in a small mining town in Western Australia. Uh, he told me to visit him one day, but I sincerely doubt that will ever happen, because it's like miles away from Perth, in the middle of nowhere, Right, and it's like the, the last town where all the miners come to um, when they have their days off or whatever. So it's a really rough and tumble town. Okay, you can imagine a mining town. People come into town to get drunk, see prostitutes, whatever. They are like full of money, single men, whatever. Okay, so imagine this sort of town. But yet, uh, he told me 
Now, he tried to evangelize people. And when he evangelized some people, and they found out that he belonged to this church that he came from, some of them said to him, why would I want to come to your church? It's got such a bad reputation. Can you imagine that? That the church in this wild, wild west town, cowboy town, can have a bad reputation. What does it say about the people there? When people, the, 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 the people who come to this town who are like cowboys, right, can think that the church has a bad reputation compared to them. It is because the people there are not living out their lives in the conduct becoming of a saint. Uh, he was telling me, my pastor friend, of how uh, all the struggles he had, that even in the annual general meeting, there was a man, a Christian man, so-called Christian man, who got up and started shouting and ranting and just stormed off and all the other problems he had. See, these were people who were saints, but they were not living as saints. They were living without recognition of the sin in their life. How different it is uh, from uh, this uh, story that was told again last week, uh, Don Carson shared at one of the ministers' conferences, about how there was a man he knows who sits on the board with him, of directors, in uh, the Gospel Coalition in America. And this man had been a pastor for 25 years in this church called Camelback Church in Phoenix, Arizona. I don't know how they get their names there. Anyway, this church has a building that's seated when he first went there, 800 people. But the church only had less than 100 people attending. And when he, this pastor, took on the job that he recognized all the problems inherent with this church. So what did he do? He went to this church and he said, Look, I don't know all the problems here, I'm just going to teach you the Bible, I'm just going to teach, teach you the Bible. And he kept teaching them the Bible and he got the leaders together after a few months in a retreat, kept teaching them the Bible. And during this uh, retreat, as he went through the Bible, the leaders themselves recognized that they were guilty of many sins. Uh, the sins of slander, unlovingness, harsh language, power politics, pride, anger and rage. These are the words that uh, Don Carson used, not me, right? And that's why the church had dwindled and dwindled from 800 to 100. Because of the sins of the Christians in that church. And these leaders, after they had sat under the teaching of this man at uh, Camelback, at their retreat, re realized that they were sinful. And they needed to repent of their sins. So after their retreat, they went two by two, the leaders, to all the families in that church. And they met them in their houses and they confessed their sins to the congregation members and they sought to reconcile all the relationships. And a few years later, the whole church came together, also at another retreat, and they put together a covenant where they said the whole church confessed to these sins and said and made a covenant that they would hate these sins and not do them anymore. And apparently if you go to this church in Camelback Church in Phoenix, Arizona, in the foyer of the church, there's actually the original copy of the of the covenant they made. And today, 25 years later, the church is thriving and growing. And uh, when Don Carson told this story, I told myself, well, that's exactly what the church is. It's all about, isn't it? It's a church who recognizes that they are saints, that is called to be holy, treats the sin seriously, 
repents and uses you know, the Holy Spirit to, to completely change and transform them. So I think that as we look at this passage today, I'd really like to encourage each and every one of us to take seriously our identity. We are saints. And our, take, to take seriously the call that is made to us to be holy. And to not cushion or deflect or redirect or redefine sin, but recognize sin for what it is. And to really examine our hearts and to say, well, if I struggle with anger, divisiveness, ambition, gossip, slander, whatever, maybe bitterness, let us confess those sins to God. And let us, through the Holy Spirit, overcome them. And truly, not grieve the Holy Spirit, but walk in the Spirit. And look forward to the return of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come to you today, truly we want to pray that our minds are always informed by you and your word, and not by the culture or the society around us. Help us to see our true identity is first and foremost in Christ, not our job, not our possessions, not our hobbies, not our interests. And to see that Being Christ, we are called to be holy, just as you are holy, to reflect your holiness in everything we do. We pray that you may help us to to see the sins in our lives, to address them, to confess those sins to you, whatever it may be, and through the Holy Spirit to empower us to overcome and struggle and win over those sins. And we pray that in this way, we'll continue to please you and continue to look forward with great confidence to the return of Jesus Christ. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.